You're listening to Book Insights, brought to you by Memoed. Finding and simplifying the world's most powerful ideas to fit into your lifestyle. Each episode is a deep dive into a nonfiction bestseller that can change your life or make you think. In around 30 minutes, you'll learn all about a book that offers wisdom for your life, career, or business. So get ready to live and work smarter, better, and happier with Book Insights. the 18th century, the words capitalism and economics had not yet been invented. All money matters were considered under quote-unquote political economy. Economics was seen as part of the political and social system, and not as a field of study in its own right, separate to politics, philosophy, law and ethics. Adam Smith was not the first political economist. He's predated by a group of French economic thinkers called the physiocrats. It was, however, in the writing of his famous book, The Wealth of Nations, that Smith first established a new discipline. An inquiry into the nature and cause of the wealth of nations is the full title of Smith's book. It's the first book on economics that really caught the public's eye and went on to be considered a great work of literature. Smith's informal style made his book very readable. He fiercely criticized the rulers at the time, which made him very popular. Adam Smith was born in 1723 in Kirkcaldy, Scotland. Smith studied moral philosophy at Glasgow University and went on to Oxford. In 1748, he began giving public lectures in Edinburgh. He returned to Glasgow and was appointed to a chair of logic, then to moral philosophy. All this when he was only in his twenties. Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations over the course of ten years. It was finally published in 1776. He was 53 years old. The book covers two volumes and weighs in at 380,000 words. Large portions of the book are now only relevant to scholars, with whole sections dedicated to grain statistics, fluctuations of the price of silver, and the taxation of miscellaneous home goods. Outside the now immaterial data, the wealth of nations remains engrossing and relevant. Here is James Otterson, philosopher and political economist with Wake Forest University, speaking about Smith with Learn Liberty. Adam Smith was one of the principals of an astonishing period of human learning called the Scottish Enlightenment during the 18th century. Adam Smith called himself a moral philosopher. For him, moral philosophy encompassed all of the investigation that had to do with human behavior. So he's now principally known as the father of economics, and that's because of the book The Wealth of Nations. Written for the interested layman, The Wealth of Nations assumes zero knowledge of its subject. Over 200 years on, the book still provides valuable lessons on basic economics. It remains a blueprint for national prosperity, based on small government and the freedom of citizens to act in their best interests. In this book Insight, we focus on Smith's thoughts in two key areas. First, the power of self-interest. Second, the role of labor and the division of labor in capitalism. And third, how nations grow rich through trade and poor by limiting freedom. In The Wealth of Nations, Smith made the argument that it didn't actually matter if societies were mainly driven by self-interest, so long as the overall effect was good. The invisible hand of the free market would make sure that individuals acting to their own highest benefit would end up elevating the whole. It's easy to assume that Smith was interested only in the pursuit of one's own self-interest, but Smith's concepts are not an excuse to act greedily or unjustly. The wealth of nations simply suggests that a person's honest work done for the sake of himself or his family should lead to a good use of resources. 
A society allowed to act this way would inevitably make the most of what it had, and over time grow prosperous. This basic outlook is seen in one of the most famous lines from the book. It is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own interest. We address ourselves not to their humanity, but to their self-love, and never talk to them of our own necessities, but of their advantages. Nobody but a beggar chooses to depend chiefly upon the benevolence of his fellow citizens. Besides being an insight into human nature, it's also a summary of Smith's philosophy of self-reliance. We are more likely to help others and be in a position to help them when we have our own needs covered. Smith also contributed the concept of natural liberty to political economy. He noted that rulers can either hinder or help the progress of their citizens. Most of the time, they help them by getting out of the way. According to Smith, it's the government's responsibility to enforce basic security and order so people and their enterprises may flourish. The Wealth of Nations was written when frustration was at an all-time high over government interference and red tape. Legions of officials extracted every possible penny through taxes, customs, excises, and arbitrary rules. The Wealth of Nations was a great success because it pointed to the principle of natural liberty, which assumed people should be free to follow their economic interests with a minimum of government interference. Smith insisted there were only three areas where government should have a role. Protecting the society from the violence and invasion of other independent societies. Protecting citizens from the unjust or oppression of every other member of it. And establishing a corresponding judicial system. And building and maintaining public works and institutions which are too expensive for a single individual to undertake, but which would benefit greatly society as a whole. All these things should be paid for through taxes. However, when something benefits only a section of society rather than the whole, this should be paid for either privately or by a tax on the users. A good example here is that although Smith advocated the creation of a basic schooling system, he suggested that those who benefited the most from education should also be willing to pay for it. In this book insight, we've discussed Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations and his concepts of self-interest and political freedom. Smith believed that societies naturally advanced if the people were left relatively free to pursue their economic aims. To prohibit a great people, he writes, from making all that they can of every part of their own produce, or from employing their stock and industry in the way that they judge most advantageous to themselves, is a manifest violation of the most sacred rights of mankind. Neither other citizens nor the state should stand in the way of our natural desire to make a life for ourselves that benefits ourselves and our family. This is how Smith reconciles his belief in self-interest and in personal freedom. They are at once good for us and good for the whole. Next time, we'll go into one of Adam Smith's essential ideas that helped revolutionize economic thinking. Enjoying this episode of Book Insights? If so, keep listening and learning. There's a collection of over 100 titles you can read or listen to now at memodeapp.com slash insights. That's M-E-M-O-D-A-P-P dot com slash insights. Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations in the late 18th century. It became the handbook of the new industrial capitalism of Smith's time. It led to the perception that Smith was an apostle of greed and self-interest. In reality, 
Smith had published a different work 17 years prior. It was called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. In it, Smith argued that societies are bound by moral forces like conscience and sympathy for others, along with self-interest. Here is Rabbi Erwin Kuhler discussing Smith's two works with The Economist. Adam Smith never imagined that capitalism that he wrote about in The Wealth of Nations could actually succeed without the moral underpinnings, the moral, what he called sentiments, we would call them virtues. Without the virtues that, of a society and virtues of individuals that would actually create the base of a healthy capitalism. In this book insight, we'll discuss Smith's thoughts on labor and the benefit for the common man. It was no accident that Smith began his book with the subject of labor. He believed that the potential wealth of a country depends most on the organization of its labor force. He specifies the skill, dexterity, and judgment with which its labor is generally applied. It also depended on the proportion of the population engaged in useful work. The real price of everything, Smith writes, what everything really costs to the man who wants to acquire it, is the toil and trouble of acquiring it. People become rich by providing desirable goods or services that save other people the labor of having to make it themselves. The level of hardship, skill, or ingenuity required to obtain the item or service will often decide its worth. However, Smith notes that, in this state of things, the whole produce of labor does not always belong to the laborer. He must in most cases share it with the owner of the stock which employs him. This was, of course, Marx's problem with capitalism. The person at the top of the pyramid, who might not contribute to the labor or even provide direction in the creation of the product, gets the bulk of the returns of the labor. In Smith's mind, this is fair. Without the stock or capital provided in the first place, the wages of the laborer could not be paid. He noted that in rich countries, even though many people do not work, Society as a whole supplies most people's needs. Rich countries characteristically have a much greater division of labor than poor ones. There is great efficiency in dividing up tasks according to the ability of people best able to do them, and time is saved in not changing from one task to another. Here is James Otterson, philosopher and political economist at Wake Forest University, discussing Smith with Learn Liberty. Remember that the title of the book was An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations. So what Smith was interested to know was why are some places wealthy and other places are not? Well, what Smith didn't say is almost as important as what he did say. It's not because of natural resources. It's not because some races are superior to others. Both of those were explanations that were available and heard at the time. That wasn't it for him. What he thought the key to the difference between wealthy and non-wealthy places was whether they allowed division of labor could a person focus on something? Why would that matter? Because if you were allowed to focus on a fairly narrow range of activities, this could unleash your human ingenuity. Smith gives the famous example of the manufacturer of pins. In a workshop, the making of pins is broken down into multiple jobs. One man draws out the wire, another straightens it, another cuts it, and so on. Many thousands more pins can be made in a week than in a workshop where one person has to perform all these tasks. However, physical production isn't necessarily where division of labor is applied. In advanced societies, the creation of new ideas, or philosophy, becomes its own trade. With such specialization, 
each individual becomes more expert in his own peculiar branch. More work is done upon the whole, and the quantity of science is considerably increased by it. In a well-governed society, the division of labour leads to universal opulence, allowing even the lowliest workers to cover all their needs. Smith mentions the Scottish Highlanders of his time, who, thanks to their remoteness from towns, had to be their own butcher, baker, and brewer. In advanced communities, every person effectively becomes a merchant. Their work speciality gives them no time to make all the things that satisfy their needs. Instead, they must sell the excess of what they produce. A shoemaker may need only six pairs of shoes a year for his family, but makes hundreds more. The bigger the city, the more specialised the workforce, and the greater the trade in goods and services. Smith noted that big cities are wealthy precisely because of their increased division of mental and physical labour. In this episode of Book Insights, we discussed Adam Smith's concept of distribution of labour. Advanced communities allow individuals to specialise in focused skills, so we are able to rely on one another for goods and services. This process allows society and individuals to grow. Next, we'll conclude this book insight with Smith's big question, how do nations grow rich and how do they become poor? Enjoying this episode of Book Insights? If so, keep listening and learning. There's a collection of over 100 titles you can read or listen to now at memodapp.com insights. That's M-E-M-O-D-A-P-P dot com slash insights. Though almost 250 years have passed since Adam Smith published The Wealth of Nations, it remains relevant and popular in modern economic discussions. Smith's concept of division of labor continues to inspire economic discourse today. Here is business magnate and philanthropist Warren Buffett, speaking at Georgetown University. If you read Adam Smith and the specialization of labor, you know that, you know, that if, you're, if you're good at one thing, you're not necessarily good at another, and you ought to get the person, you ought to use your talents where they're most useful and get other people to give their talent. You know, when my wife had babies, I mean, I went to an obstetrician. I didn't deliver myself. When I get a toothache, I go to a dentist. So I wanted to go to people who were very good at giving away money and who were younger, energetic, smart, and had the same objectives in philanthropy that I did. In this episode of Book Insights, we'll conclude our discussion of Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations by answering Adam Smith's question, how do nations grow rich and how do they become poor? According to Adam Smith, a country's wealth begins when its citizens begin to save. Wasteful people are a public enemy while every frugal person becomes a public benefactor. These savings are invested towards productive ends, which naturally increases the amount of people employed. This wealth formula of savings, investment, employment seems obvious to us today, but in the 18th century, it was revolutionary. The prevailing mercantilist view held that the economic object of a nation was to build up its store of gold, silver, and other precious metals, either through trade or war. In contrast, Smith's recipe seemed middle class and modest. It rested on the Protestant ethic of frugality, industry, and minding one's own business. He wrote, It was not by gold or by silver, 
but by labour, that all the wealth of the world was originally purchased. A country's gross domestic product, or GDP, is the annual value of everything it produces. Smith said it is made up of three things. Rent obtained from land, wages from labour, and the profits of stock, or things used in production. In a complex economy, gain from any of these affects the other. If wages increase, so does rent from land. If profits go down, so might wages and rents. This was the beginning of what today we'd call macroeconomics. Countries could also grow rich from trade. Smith noted that the most successful cultures of the past were all traders, usually maritime. Countries who trade will always be richer than those who do not. The trading country is able to buy raw materials it does not have and turn them into manufactured goods. These are much more valuable than raw commodities, which the nation's businesses then sell to great profit to other countries. This strengthens the nation's economy, helping the people on every level, from the very wealthy to the ailing poor. Here is philosopher and political economist James Otterson discussing Adam Smith with Learning Liberty. The way to help people who are the least among us, the bottom rungs economically of society, is by allowing for commerce, free trade, free migration, limited government. To the extent that you can encourage those policies, their estates will be raised tremendously. Smith believed trade always benefited both parties, whereas the prevailing mercantilist view held that trade was a form of war in which you sought to gain at the other's expense. National wealth grows when things and money are circulated and exchanged. This was understood by medieval European cities, such as Florence, which amassed huge riches by doing business with the countryside surrounding them, as well as with the most remote corners of the globe. Cities and countries that myopically stayed within their own borders were destined to founder. If a person spends their money on luxuries instead of building up capital, the day of financial reckoning will come. Likewise, a sovereign that spent huge sums on palaces, the pageantry of court, and unnecessary wars was looking for trouble. According to Smith, getting rich by looting other countries for all they were worth is as bad as wasting and profiting from war. It was the sacred thirst for gold that brought the Spaniards to the New World. Yet the end result of this was hardly beneficial to the long-term prosperity of Spain. A country was better off slowly developing its own resources and using trade to sell its surpluses. Smith was sceptical of the monopoly trading companies, such as the East India Company, those who would use government mandates to make fortunes for its members. Neither was he keen on the colonisation of other lands. The Wealth of Nations was written at a time when America was still a collection of British colonies. Smith had advocated for Britain withdrawing itself. He wrote that Britain's rulers had always imagined America to be a gold mine, but it had ultimately become a money pit. It had cost the British taxpayer more than it was worth. It was time for Britain to assume more modest ambitions. Smith was very sympathetic to colonised nations and hoped that in the future, the balance would be restored. Ideally, the colonised people would grow in power and wealth as the result of their connections with wealthy countries. In this book Insight, we discussed Adam Smith and the wealth of nations. We learned that peaceful trade is Smith's modest 
but reasonable recommendation for a nation that desired riches. Countries that sought war or looting or spent more on the appearance of wealth than the procuring of wealth were often doomed to failure. The role of government is a vital matter in considering the creation of wealth and prosperity. After all, we live in societies governed by laws and policies. The Wealth of Nations was published at a time when Europe was entering a new industrial era and the nature of government needed to change quickly. People were fed up and wanted to be free to pursue their economic destinies. At first glance, rulers no doubt, thought that the title of Smith's book referred to the wealth of states, when in fact Smith used the term nation to mean the people of those countries. The smartest governments did not put faith in themselves to create prosperity, he said, but rather in the ingenuity of their citizens. In short, a nation's wealth rested on one thing, the liberty of people to pursue their own economic interests and pursue their own happiness. Again, this seems obvious to us today, but it wasn't so much in the 18th century. Smith was the founder of modern economics, but he also gave us a fundamental truth about successful societies. Freedom matters. Thank you for listening to Book Insights. Check out the rest of our content at memodap.com. Please keep in mind that the information provided in or through our Book Insights episodes is for educational and informational purposes only. It's not intended to be a substitute for advice given by qualified professionals and should not be relied upon to disregard or delay seeking professional advice.